Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. Not to tell you, my guest today has a very uh, similar name to a another celebrity. And this happened a few weeks ago, which cracked me up because I always take pictures with my guests and I put them on my website and I post who's on my show. And I had a, a very talented actor and director, Michael McDonald. On. If you don't know him, he was on Mad TV. He's also the in-house director for Mike and Molly. So I posted a picture of us together and some people were like, oh, we love them on Mad TV. But then some people were like, oh, we saw him at the Spectrum in Philadelphia. We love them with the Doobie Brothers. And I'm thinking, this guy looks nothing like the Michael McDonald. This guy's Mike McDonald was on my show. He's 50, around 50 years old. Thin, good-looking guy. Michael McDonald has had gray hair and a beard, I think, all his life. And it was just amazed me that people sat there and got confused. So I'm guessing my neighbor, and my name neighbor, my guest, when he gives his name, sometimes people go, oh, and my guest is Micro, Michael Rhodes. Now, do you go by Mike or Michael? Um, I go by Mike typically, although uh, I think my writing credits, I do Michael. It's a little more dignified, perhaps. It is, but now Mike Rowe came. That guy came out of nowhere, and now he he became very popular after you were already popular in comedy and working. That must piss piss you off a little bit. Um, it hasn't yet, and I actually have received a few of his uh, uh, residual checks. So you know, I'm not. <laughs> I honestly have too, but I I didn't do anything about it because the checks were like a dollar and ten cents. <laughs> so it would cost me nine dollars to figure out how to get them back to him. So. Uh, sometimes our credits get mixed up like an IMDB and it worries me sometimes because they'll, they'll see like one of his credits in my thing. And then if somebody wants to interview me like for a job or something and they see that and they think it's him showing up and they see me, it's like, okay, let's it's pretend. Just, yeah. <laughs> now we were talking earlier, you know, you, 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 you're doing stand up in New York, but where did you grow up from? Where did you grow up as a kid? Connecticut. Okay. So now as a kid, did you know you wanted to get into comedy? Were you a funny kid? Were you an athletic kid? Or I mean, what was your gig as a kid? I was not athletic. And, uh, my dad, I, I could say it here. It was a little bit, uh, a little bit like the great Santini, I would say. Okay. <laughs> so it, sports wasn't <laughs> that much fun for me. Uh, and as a kid, uh, I learned that if I'm funny, I get kind of accepted into a group. You know, if I'm not the athlete, I'm not the popular guy. If I'm not like the dude who smokes and drinks, you know, I, you know so I learned if I could be funny, people are, are friends with me. They're into me. And I learned this at a young age. In fact, uh, I remember I was probably 12 or 13 or whatever, and I was able to do this impression, and I can't do it now with my voice, but I, I, used, to do this, I used to do this loud impression of a siren. And it, I can't even, that's my old version, but it was so loud because I was so young. My voice hadn't even changed yet uh, that cars would actually pull over. No, really? Yeah, yeah. Cars would pull over and I hang out the corner at my friends and this was the greatest That must thing. have killed because I'm thinking like when you're a kid, you're right. Like in, when you when you have a great joke or something like that and it like we had a kid who had a glass eye. Now, we wouldn't, I'm legally blind in one eye, but I didn't have a glass eye. And I'd be like, well, wait a second, I'm getting my balls busted and I'm legally blind. But he has a glass eye. And we accepted him because he would screw around. Like, if we didn't like a girl, he would take the eye out and, like, put it in his mouth. Oh. And it was disgusting. But as a kid, it's like one of those tricks, like a siren is going to, it's going to cause bedlam. Yes. It was great. It was fun. And my dad was kind of a funny guy. He would tell these old jokes. And I would see he would get uh, laughs with his friends. Uh, my dad owned this like corner shithole bar. Can I say shit? Yeah, you can, you can curse. It's all right. You can say shithole. <laughs> but he, uh, it was this really, you know, I was kind of raised in this bar. And it was like a lot of drunks. It was one of those bars that had like, you know, he had like five softball teams. So there was like these cool dudes hanging out. It was even like Friday night. He had strippers. But he would, you know, pull me out of there before the strippers came on, unfortunately. But I was like 9, 10, 12 years old. And uh, but I would see my dad get laughs doing these corny jokes, and then his friends would kind of join him, and there would be these these kind of joke sessions, and that was kind of my first experience of like the power of being funny. I mean, I, they were like the old school kind of racist, you know. But it was it was I, I remember like the first was like Polak jokes. Yeah, because we, me and my guest last week were talking about this. But you know, when I was younger, there was the books, the Polish joke books and uh -huh. the Italian joke books, and and no one was pissed. And then of course later they changed the Polish jokes to blonde jokes. Right. But yeah, I remember the same thing. Like. It was and my dad and his with his friend his friend would come over and same kind of thing. It was these jokes and and as a kid, it's funny as I never took him as offensive. Like my best friend was Polish, his name is Steve Polinski, and I'd be like, yeah, hey, yeah, yeah, you're Polish. You know, he's going, I'm Ukrainian. You know, it was uh, the thing. Because in fact, I remember the first joke that kind of registered as a joke was, uh, how did the Polak or whoever blonde, you know, how did the Polak uh, break his leg breaking leaves? <laughs> 
you know, <laughs> I know that. Yeah, fell out of the tree. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, at nine, that's like, wow. Okay. I get it. That's funny. Um, you know, and I think, I think also in the family, the comedy kind of was a bonding thing, you know, watching funny stuff with the family in front of the TV, I think was like a bonding thing, you know? So, uh, so I just became more and more connected to it, you know, and I fell in love with stand up. I started seeing stand ups on TV and my favorite thing was uh, when Rodney would come on the Tonight Show and uh, I was 16 or whatever. And I was starting to learn how to tell jokes to friends and, and sort of making up jokes and kind of finding how, how to riff and stuff like that. And then listening to Rodney on the Tonight Show, I thought, you know. I, there's something about those jokes that I have a connection to. I don't know. I, I think I could write jokes like that. So, uh, I, so I'm watching Rodney, and then after he does his jokes, he goes sits at the panel, and he talks about his life before stand up, or he he for a while had to sell aluminum siding, but uh, when he first started, he went under, under by the name of Jackie Roy, and he was uh, uh, that was kind of his Catskill Mountain name. And then he talked about he had a club in Manhattan called Dangerfields. So I had this idea. I uh, I'm gonna write some jokes and send them to Jackie Roy at Dangerfields in New York. And I had this big manual typewriter. And I, you know, now how old are you? I'm 16. Okay. Uh, I figure why not? And I wrote like two pages of jokes, and then actually sent it and kind of forgot about it. And then a few weeks go by and the phone rings and my mom answers and she's at the bottom of the stairs like. Mike, there's a Rodney on the phone for you. <laughs> I'm like, what? What do you, what? And I pick up the, hello? Hey, Mike, yeah, this is Rodney. How you doing? You all right? You okay? Hey, how are you? Like, hey, how are you? You know, 16-year-old kid. Hey. Um, <laughs> good. You know, I read your jokes. They're all right. They're okay. You know, these are good jokes. And I'm like, oh, really? You know, not for me, though. I wouldn't do these jokes. But these are good jokes. And then he stayed on the phone with me for like 20 minutes. Because I said, you know, I, I said, I love stand-up. I like watching stand-up. I want to come to New York, and, he, and he, so he told me about all the comedy clubs. He goes, "Yeah, hey, I got the improv out here. You got to come out. There's catcher. Don't come to my club. It's no good. You know, don't come." To... And uh, he just went into this thing about, you know, it's going to take a while. It's going to take, you know, years before you even figure out what's funny. I mean, he was so generous. And at 16, and you get that phone call, you're going to go, "All right, if he, if I'm getting an endorsement from him." Yeah, of course. I, I, you know, of course. Cut to a year later, I'm living in New York doing stand up. So did you quit high school? Uh. By the time I got out, I was 19. I okay. was 18, right out of high school. So you got out of high school and you yeah. said, I have to be here. This is what this is my calling. In fact, uh, in Hartford, Connecticut, they had... A the Last Laugh. No, there used to be the Brown Thompson. There was a club booked by John Schuler. Oh, Schuler, sure. Okay, The Last Laugh, because I played there. Well, this was at the Hartford Civic Center. It was a stand-up comics competition. Oh, wow, okay. And the winner get got a limo to New York City dinner and you got to audition at the improv so i won that competition and now all of a sudden i'm i'm whisked into new york on a, on a limo in a limo and i passed auditions i'm like this is just too so you're 19 and it, this has become very easy for you i mean right now probably every like 38 year old hack hates your guts <laughs> they're probably going who's this kid who just came in he won a contest, but the the people at the improv liked you. I guess was yeah, it yeah. Silva then? Was it Silva Friedman? I guess no, it was just before she came in. Okay, uh, you know Chris Albrecht was there then. He was part owner. Chris later, you know, ran HBO and put on all those great shows. And uh, but he was part owner manager at the time. So, so they he, passed you. Yeah, you're, yeah. You're, this is like your first big your first big gig, pretty much, is in Hartford. Yeah. You win and then you go down. Yeah, and the truth is, I mean, I was such a fan of comedy and. In Connecticut, while well, I was still living there in Waterbury, Connecticut, I don't know who would know Waterbury, Connecticut, but I, I, they had a comedy club called the Red Bull at the Red Bull Inn. A guy named yes. uh, Gary Grant booked it. I've done the Red Bull Inn. In fact, my mom lived in the apartments next door to the Red okay, Bull Inn. Okay, that's funny. Was, uh, but this was before there were any comedy. We're talking about 1978. Okay, all right. So you're, yeah. you're. This is on the before the boom. Right, because what I would do, like I would go to whatever the local ground round, and if there was a band. Before they went on stage, I say, when you guys take a break, can you introduce me? I just will go to Bannett's, and I would walk up on stage and just go and just do it. So I I had a little bit of experience, like before the Hartford thing, and but I was just so in love with it, and then through osmosis, I think I was kind of 
just seen as a stand-up. It just kind of happened that way, you know. So it was it was just cool and fun. But you know, I still lived, I still lived in Connecticut, and I, I would come in on weekends. Uh, I was actually working for NASA. Uh, right out of high school, I worked on the space shuttle in Danbury, Connecticut. What did you do in the space shuttle? Well, uh, we I built these components called transducers, and they they took fuel and air pressure and converted them into digital readouts. And I had to build the circuitry and fix them for the correct tolerances so under you, certain. So you're a smart guy. I, I mean, think to so. do I, that, you well, had to be very smart. Well, what's interesting, you know, is tells you a little bit about how life is. I was sort of deemed <clears throat> not smart enough for college. So I, I was sort of sent to a, a, a technical high school. So I learned a trade. That's really what it came down to. So, <clears throat> so out of there, I got that job. I guess I was pretty good at that. So it's an interesting thing, you know, in your life. You hit that point of like, I have, I have a choice to make. I can go into this crazy world of show business, or I can have a nice career, you know, working for NASA. But I just knew what I wanted to do, you know, and I threw myself into it, you know. It was pretty cool. So you started going to the city. Yeah. And so you started going on weekends at first. And then were you getting were you getting on stage? Um, I actually went in for an improv comedy class in the afternoon. And there were a few times I would come in during the week, but it was hard because it was a two-hour drive, you know, so I'd be coming home in the middle of the night. But uh, it uh, – I'm trying to think. Eventually, I moved in. There was a uh, there was a daytime manager at the Improv. This guy I just kind of got to know by coming in on Saturdays. And it was kind of an interesting story. He was this really really heavy guy. He was about 75 years old, kind of an ex Broadway actor dude, and uh, so he was working the books and booking the reservations and all that sort of thing. And so I got to know him as I came in every week. And he lived right across the street from the Improv, so he said. You know, well, when you're ready to move, you can sleep on my couch, you know, before you find an apartment, if you need that in-between place. And I was so young and naive that I didn't know that he was gay, right? I didn't, okay. Which is fine, but uh, even after one night I came home, middle of the night, and he's kind of in his bedroom, and I'm getting ready to sleep on the couch. And then he starts screaming, oh, my God, a ghost. There's a ghost. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> I go, There's a ghost. He's, in, he's right in front of you. I, go, I don't see it. What are you talking He's gone. The ghost is gone. But he was right. There was a ghost. And there's like this pause. And he goes, if you're scared and you want to come in here, there's plenty of room. And <laughs> That is so naive, especially because, you know, when you're young and you're coming from a small, smaller town, because, you know, uh, where you live wasn't a huge town. And it's just, you know, you don't expect that, especially because when you, you grow up with your friends, you don't expect someone to just sit there and, you know. <laughs> it was really, and, and, and honestly, I didn't know till like three years after where a mutual friend lived upstairs from us. Because <clears throat> I was always weird, like when I come back into the club and the comics got to know me, they're like, oh, you're living with Al, huh? Oh, okay. I'm like, what? What do you? I don't. What is it? I don't. Uh, it was kind of fantastic though to be a teenager and be thrown into this world because to me it was what I I already knew that I loved and all of a sudden like I'm I'm refereeing a wrestling match with Andy Kaufman on the stage. I'm playing the drums for his Elvis. You know, uh, I I reconnect with Rodney and then you cut to me and and a, a friend of mine. We're in Rodney's dressing room, which was in the basement of his club, and we're pitching jokes to him, and he's got his robe on, and he's pacing, and we're pitching his jokes. And in the middle of it, he turns around and starts peeing in the sink. <laughs> like, I got to piss in the sink, you know? They don't give me a toilet down here. I gotta... All right, welcome to showbiz. But the Rodney jokes are legendary, because Rich Shiner said about, you know, when Rodney would just sit there and, like, want to do coke and then you'd see rodney he wore nothing under the robe so you'd be looking through the table and he goes he goes you look down and he goes you see these big nuts uh -huh. <laughs> you go oh my god so you're working at clubs in new york now are you are you getting to be a regular at the clubs now because you're you're getting on stage are you getting a lot of stage time it i am but it's not it's it's late at night you know it, it, the the process really was the new you the newer you are the later in the night you come on stage you know so uh 
I mean, I was learning about stand-up, and I was learning about life at the same time. I mean, New York City was kind of my college. I mean, New York, they were talking early 80s when Times Square was a ghetto and crack and, you know, crime and prostitution. It was all part of the landscape of where I was living. I mean, it was kind of a cool way to be introduced to the city. Because also, my technical background got me a job uh, at, at this place on uh, on Broadway uh, it was a AV repair and rental place. So my day job was repairing VCRs and projectors and all this equipment. And part of the job was month, once a month, I had to go to Times Square and do the maintenance on the projection equipment in the porno theaters. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, 1980, 81, that was like hardcore, nasty. It was just, it was all like just walking into a Scorsese movie. You know, you just I just remember, you know, me with my little toolbox <clears throat> going in and you, and you go in this back room and there's like, you know, this manager, you know, with a gimp hand and a dead eye, you know, and the and the, the crack wall with the crooked lamp hanging. He's peeling off cash for me to bring back to my boss. And there's a mirror. I, I was this image. There's a mirror on the floor reflecting into the lobby where all these prostitutes are. And it's the middle of the day. There was live sex on stage. There's like four people. There's always a businessman with a briefcase. And, you know, they see this kid, the prostitutes see this kid get a roll of cash, and I'm walking through them, and it's like some kind of Disney thing where they're like, hey, you want a date? What are you doing? Come on. You know, and I'm like running out the building, you know. It was fantastic, you know. So you're doing that. So you have a job, so it's a good day. So it allows you to, you know, so you don't have to struggle that much at night. Right. You get your late spots. So when do you start moving into getting better spots? Um, it it kind of took a little bit of time, and I didn't mind it. I was kind of enjoying the process. Um, it took a few years. It took a few years, and I started to get up. And back then, the thing that said you were getting better was when you got to be the master of ceremonies when you got to be the MC. first you get to be the late night MC, which happened in the middle of the night you get to take over for the rest of the night and then you move up uh like another big thing is you get your first weekend spot so it, it was at least two years um but back then there were so many places i remember doing 11 shows in one night you know there were so many whether it's these little corner places there used to be kind of a famous place called the Triple N, which was across the street from Studio 54. I mean, it's where Freddie Prinze started, you know, and that was like two blocks from my house. I would start my night there, walk down towards the improv. On the way, there was a Beefsteak Charlie's that had a lounge. I was there because my brother lived in, still lives in Manhattan, but I remember when he graduated college, we went to the Beefsteak Charlie's, and I remember it was because it was all you could eat shrimp cocktail and sangria. Uh-huh. Just a sangria. I still remember that. I'm like, and I'm like 19. I'm like, oh my god, I can drink the sangria. And, and all you can eat shrimp. It was amazing, and it's just so funny. Now you look at you, God, the shrimp must have been made of like sea monkeys. I mean, it must have been awful. I know you have like four, and it's like, oh, that's all I could eat. This, you know, I'm not even sure what sangria is. It's a red wine with brandy and fruit. It was, uh, it was one of these drinks that you know. When you're younger, you go, oh, yeah, you know, but when you're older, you go, oh, oh no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you're doing all these sets. So you go to Beefsteak Charlie's and you'd hit the. Uh, imp- then I'd get to the improv, you know, and, and the fun thing really for me, too, was the camaraderie back then, especially at the improv. I meet, uh, I've made friends that I still hang out with today. You know? Like, who was your group? Uh, it was like Ray Romano, uh, Attell was around, uh, Sarah Silverman. And as I came in, the graduating class was Larry Miller, Seinfeld. Uh, I kind of got to see the tail end of these guys just before they hit. Uh, I actually worked the door and seated people for a while. It was me and Keenan Wayans. Okay. The door. Um, in fact, I, I last year got to do a documentary about the improv's 50th anniversary. I saw it. Oh, cool. It, it, was, it was so much fun, and it was something I always planned on doing. I just couldn't afford to do it, and I, and I didn't have the time to do it. So luckily, Epics found me, and they said, "We'll pay me to you'll they'll pay me to do it." And and I pretty much got to do what I wanted to do. I mean, that documentary. I mean, they kind of wanted to do marquee people, you know, big names. So uh, a lot of them I started with, or at least know or know enough about them to know the right questions to ask them. 
it was it was really cool. It was I, I felt like I really got to say what I wanted to say in a documentary. Um, I mean, the truth is, if I if I could, I would like to also have interviewed like unknown people, people who didn't make it. You know, what was their story? You know, what are the smaller stories? But I tried as best I could to, uh, you know, just get tell get big name people to tell small stories. You know, um, and it was fun. It was one of the one of the most fun projects I've done. It was a blast because it was a part of my history, a part of my own life. So you know? you're part of that history. You're part of the New York scene. So now you're in New York, and I guess I'm sure you did uh, Caroline's in the Road. You probably did those shows. I mean, the comedy, uh, half-hour comedy hour that ran like 97 well, times. Did you start doing those gigs? Not only did I start doing them, I was a writer for those shows. Now, how did that happen? How did you transcend, go from doing stand-up to start writing for those, those shows? Well, I think the important thing to learn, if we learn anything today, is those relationships in the beginning are kind of what gets you going. It kind of what gets your career. Because all my friends, I was always telling them, I want to be a writer. I've been writing. Uh, I'm selling jokes to comedians. I used to write for like Rip Taylor and, and Rodney and Joan Rivers and just, you know, it, it was, I was doing that as well as learning to do stand up. And comedians would pay, you know, uh, I think Rodney was like 50 bucks a joke. Rip Taylor was like 50 bucks. And uh, so just my name got to be known as a writer. Mike Rose, a writer. And I would send, I would even send friends, which I still do, but I write something and send them stuff. I'm working on this. I'm trying to make it funnier. So just my name got known as a writer. So when Caroline's became a show, they knew they wanted to do wraparound stuff. So just discussion start. Well, who's is there any writers we know? Well, Mike Rhodes been writing. So it, it just your name kind of trickles in, and then it kind of builds from there. Uh, I I was at the launch. I was one of the original writers for Comedy Central in New York when it was the Comedy Channel. Um, and there were not a lot of stand-ups who were writers, so you know they, it was kind of a, a good place to be. You know what I mean? I was in a good position. Um, and I kind of knew I liked writing more than I do stand-up. You know, you, you just get to a point where you go, I was like, you know, I'm not going to be George Carlin. I'm not going to be Robert Klein or Richard Pryor. So what happens when I'm 45, 50 years old? What do you what do? You, do, you know, I, I certainly don't want to be on the road at that age. And I just kept realizing more and more that I like writing. So I just kind of kept leaning into that more and more you so know? you're writing in new york writing for carolines okay so now when do you decide it's time to get up and move to la well my feeling was i'm not moving to la until i have a job waiting for me. okay so but now did you know that was going to be in going into sitcom writing did you did you was that even in the back of your mind or to you were you just a uh, i'm a joke writer i'm a sketch writer what was what was your view of yourself at the time as just as a comedy writer were you just as you know a gun for hire for jokes or did you even want to pursue tv writing i i love sitcom writing and i taught myself as best i could to write sitcoms uh i just started writing and writing i i you know new york i went to a, a used bookstore and i found some old tv scripts of some old tv shows and looked at the format and looked how it was done and then i started looking at my favorite tv shows at the time this is how far back it goes i hate to say it, but uh the new heart show uh the vermont show i was in love with that show so I kept trying to figure out how does it work? Why does it work? How does it structured? And uh, I was able to actually somehow get scripts from the show. And just to teach myself, I wrote like three episodes. And then I liked another show called It's Gary Shandling Show. Great show. And I wrote three of those just to practice, just to learn and just to keep doing it. And then I, I somehow got connected to... Alan Zweibel's manager, who was in New York, and Alan Zweibel created It's Gary Shandling Show with, with Gary. I, I can't even think how I got... Oh, I think it is this how it happened. It was really weird. I ran into Alan Zweibel on the street in New York, and I said, I'm so in love with your show that I wrote three scripts. And he said, can you send them to me? I mean, what are the chances? So oh, yeah, weird. exactly. Exactly. For him to sit there and say, not... I mean, that is... And for him to say... Send them. I mean, that just doesn't happen. Yeah. And uh, so he read them and liked them. He calls me. I like these. I want to set you up with my manager. And I go meet his manager, and and it was between seasons. And 
the manager said, Alan likes you. He has a new show coming out. He wants to bring you to L.A. for that. It's crazy. You just wander in the street. and uh, So I had a job lined up in L.A. It was, uh, it was a show called The Boys, and it was about the Friars Club. And it was on Showtime. It was like, there was like 10, 12 episodes of it. But it was like Norm Crosby, Lionel Standard, uh, Lionel Standard, um, uh, uh, Norman Fell, all these old timers. Classic guys. Yeah. I mean, it's classic. So that was it. I mean, that got me to LA. So I, you get out here and then you're, now you get this show. Now it must be, it's actually for you, it's a great first show because you wrote a lot of jokes and then you wrote this and you know those guys are always on. I mean, Norm Crosby. Now, were you writing jokes for them or would they get the script and ad lib? Or I mean, how did that work? Well, there was no ad libbing at all. And maybe it was a show that should have had it. And the truth is, you know, I really found the process intimidating when I came out. I was really, because I didn't know any, I didn't know how, I was sitting in my apartment in New York writing scripts. I don't know how. So, I just remember the writer's room. I never was in a writer's room before. I didn't even know. I don't even know if I knew such a thing existed in that form. I think my my information of how writers work was like the Dick Van Dyke show. Okay. You yeah. know? <laughs> so I thought, well, that's going to be fun. And so it, I mean, even to this day, sometimes I, I get intimidated by a writer's room if I, you know, uh, but it it turned out pretty great. It was fun. It was interesting. There was so many dynamics I learned, and and uh, it's funny because uh, when I came out here, I was still doing stand up, and there was this one night at the Improv in L.A. where I was kind of getting really good spots, and then eventually it was kind of like you know I get the ten whatever spot, but then I'm getting bumped. And then now it's after 12, whatever, and there's eight people in the audience. And it was it was a weird night because I did what I would do in New York, which is like you do some of what I do, play around a little, try stuff, talk to the audience, you know, do a thing. And, uh, and then when I left the stage, whoever runs the light or sound, I don't know, I don't know the person, but he took me aside and it was this weird moment of him going, no, don't worry. You know, after you do it for a few years, you'll figure it out. As if like I never did stand up before. And for whatever reason, I almost, and I don't believe in this kind of stuff, but I almost visually saw the stand up person inside of me, like leave my body, float and fly out of the building. And I never did stand up since. Wow, that's insane. I mean, I know you did it the other night, but yeah, that, that, must, that must have been great because I know I, I took a long time off, and when I came back, it was just I had fun. You know, but yeah, yeah. back then you didn't have fun. You were so worried. So now, now you're starting to write more then. So you give up stand up and you're writing for the show. And then I know you wrote for uh, Down the Shore. You wrote for that show. Yes. With Lou Schneider, who now is a writer. Now, did you know him from New York? Yes, I knew Lou from the stand up days. Um, and it was just a coincidence that we were just connected to that show. Um, I I met Alan Kirschenbaum. That was my first job. It was Alan Kirschenbaum and Phil Rosenthal were in that room, and Alan, his dad is like, uh, you know, a, a big guy at the Friars Club, and he knew my passion also I had for the Friars Club, and that was also part of the reason why I got that job with Alan Zweibel. I mean, the Friars Club, the old timer stuff, I think is you know was always fantastic, you know. Um, so Alan read my scripts and met with me, and we were kind of kindred spirits and I, I ended up working on like three shows with him you know um obviously that's the thing you always want to do you get a job on a show you want to get along with everybody and they want to keep you in their in their mix and you know so but as you start writing you also then you write for a coach which must have been great for being a sitcom you know liking sitcom I mean, coach was a great sitcom it's one of those ones that you watch it. I mean, what is it? I mean, what year did you get on? What season were you put on that? But I was on coach. Yeah. I was there the last two seasons. Now, were you a fan? Yes. Now, what's it like when you're a writer and you're going to a show you're a fan of? Is it and you know it's been on for a while. So as you said, you were a little intimidated of the white writers' room, and now you're probably going into you know as we say the big swinging dick. You know, it's like these guys have they have their place. You were sort of like a rookie and you're a, a fan, how do, how do you mentally prepare for that? 
Well, there's no mental preparation, but it is this feeling of like you're actually getting to step inside your TV. Okay. It's really a Alice in Wonderland kind of weird, very surreal, you know. Uh, <laughs> there was kind of a weird thing that happened at Coach that uh, uh, when I got to write my first episode, um, there was kind of a mix-up in the schedule. So it was supposed to be an off week. So uh, the table read, all the writers were off on vacation. It was like just me and Alan. And first of all, the writers are the guys that instigate the laps. Okay, so there's that. Uh, so we go to table read. There's that empty hole. There's that vacuum. Uh, Jerry Van Dyke and Craig T. Nelson just had a fight in the hallway before the... <laughs> and then I also have a thing in my script where it was darker than what they usually do, which was uh, Luther, Jerry Van Dyke's character. This is where they were transitioning from their cabin to Florida. They were moving. And Jerry Van Dyke's character found out he can get a cheaper flight if he transports a kidney. And, uh, and at the same time, he's talking about these funnel cakes he loves. So at some point, the funnel cakes get mixed up with the kidney. <laughs> so it's just this dark. So we do the table read, and it dies. It just dies. And it's the day, it's the day where my option gets picked up. Okay. And it just is like, it's as nightmarish and as horrible as you can imagine. And I'm just trying to crawl under the table. It's that thing where you're trying to transport your body into another building. I'm like, holy shit, this is like. And then I, uh, on my way out, I talked to uh, Bill Fagerbacke, who played the Dauber character. And I go, I mean, has this happened before? He goes, oh, it happened uh, about five years ago. And I'm like, oh. Oh, God. So you're sitting there. You must have maybe having a breakdown. So then... Uh, they come back and it didn't work, but we have to rewrite the thing for tomorrow for the next table read. But all the writers are gone, so it's me and Alan. And then my option, I found out, is not getting picked up. So now we have to rewrite a script from page one overnight. And I'm like, all right, I'm here. I'll do it. And then Alan and I write the script, goes to table the next morning, and it goes great. And then Alan says to Barry Kemp, who runs the show, he goes, just so you know, Mike and I wrote this overnight together. And then Barry Kemp says, okay, Mike can stay. Okay, well, so that worked out. Yeah. So that's just, so you're doing that, but then I also, after, you know, you did some, you were doing the sitcoms, but then you went back into, you know, with Martin Short and Jamie Kennedy. Was that something you wanted to get back into, the, the variety and the sketches? Because I know you also wrote for Becker, too. So were you going back and forth? I mean, or were you just getting hired because of your talent? Or were you sitting there going, I want to do this or I want to do that? I mean, what were you doing? I, I really was about, like, I like having a varied career and being able to do as many different kinds of things. I just think it's so much fun. I, I, you know, I have friends that, you know, they go to The Simpsons and they're there for 15 years. I mean, I wouldn't complain if I did that. But then I do like sort of challenging myself, trying different things and throwing myself in the fire. And there's it's just a lot of fun to try different things like Martin Short and Craig Ferguson. You write jokes that afternoon and then they're on TV that night. There was just something really cool about that. You know, it was really fun where when I worked on Family Guy, you write a script. Sometimes it's, you know, a year and a half from page to screen. You know, you almost forget what you wrote, you know. Now, was it was it challenging, though? I mean, when sitting there, as I said, going from coach and then going to Martin Short and then I think you did Becker after Martin Short. Do you do you have to put yourself as a writer in a certain mind frame? Because as we know, sitcoms have jokes, but they have a story. Jokes. I mean, we I tweet a lot. You, know, you can write a joke and now Twitter, you go, OK, well, this joke has to be under 132 characters and you write it. And it's it's a process, but it's a more instant process. And also because you were you were a stand up. It was an instant process. Did you really have to shift gears, though? Is it like, do you have to readjust? Like, when let's say after you left Martin Short and you went to Becker, you're basically going from a lot of jokes, jokes, jokes. And I think those, I may, I may be wrong, but shows like Martin Short and stuff like that probably have more ex-comics than a sitcom. I, don't know, maybe, I may be wrong on that, but I would seem like it would have more because you need jokes where 
you know, a sitcom, you need someone to punch it up, but you also need people who have story structure. Yeah, I I really feel like if anyone is thinking about, say, be, becoming a sitcom writer, you have to know it all. I mean, you have to know all aspects of it, and they're all kind of separate. You know, if if you can be a great story person in the room, you know what I mean, and say, if you're really helpful to say, here is the best way to tell this story. You know, here's the best way you can help out and help the room to tell this story. I think that's one of the big, first important things and the real difference between writing anything else is you, story is the first thing, story is the most important thing. Uh, that said, I think characters too are almost equally important. Um, once you, once you kind of get to know the characters and once they're established, that helps a lot in storytelling. So in other words, the jokes are really the last thing you do. The jokes hopefully are the fun part, you know. The jokes a lot of times are the, the easier part, you know. Uh, so when a story's not working, you're kinda you're kinda dead in the water and there's just so many jokes that, you know, I don't know how much is gonna help you. Uh, although I had an interesting experience last year at Two Broke Girls where I've never been on a show where it's only joke to joke. People only speak in joke, and that's it. And I had a hard time there because of it, because the the to me the characters weren't really established, and they didn't really have strong stories. And I felt like there's nothing to hang anything on. You know? Right. Well, now now when we're talking about you know the transitioning, when you wrote for Family Guy, because I mean that was you know now you're doing animation, which as I said, I mean there's joke joke joke. But it's also it's is it a different process? Because as you you know, you get instant gratification when you would write for Becker, let's say, or you know, or uh, Coach. You get the instant gratification because you write the script, you see it rehearsed, you see it in front of a crowd, just like with Craig Ferguson. You know, you write a late night joke. Okay, some jokes are gonna miss. Then you're like, oh crap. Then you go, thank God it wasn't mine. <laughs> you know, like that. But now, what's it like when you start writing animation? Because now it's you're writing to you're, there's no gratif. I mean, you don't get that instant gratification. Well, you do actually. At least I did at the table read. Okay. And especially Family Guy was crazy, and Futurama was the same. Where the table read would be a party. There's like an invited audience. Everybody's pumped up. There's like a meal. You know, like it's a whole thing. Okay, so there's people that come in to watch this. Yeah, yeah. There's fans typically. So table reads were fun. It was great, and that's where you kind of get also the first idea of what's working and what's not working. But uh, there was certainly some gratification in that, you know. And I actually like, I really like animation writing probably better than anything so far. I was at Futurama for like seven seasons, one of my favorite jobs. Uh, the pace is different, you know, with, with multicam sitcoms, you go down to the stage three times a week and watch a run through and you're almost a lot of times starting over after every run through. Okay. And it's just, uh, you know, I, I just don't like that process where animation, you don't have that kind of time. First of all, uh, you get, uh, after the table read and after the rewrites, they'll build like a, a, an animatic, which is just like a pencil drawing kind of first draft of the show. And that's your first chance to change things and rewrite things. And then you get one more chance after they do a color version to maybe put in some jokes. But, you know, you don't have to schlep down to the stage. You know, you don't have to deal with actors and egos. You know, the records and animation are always fun. You know, you get a bunch of guys together and they're, you know, goofy. And, you know, they have they, they do a whole episode in an afternoon, you know. So uh, that process so far has been so much more fun for me. I'm out right now pitching kind of a couple of animation shows. Uh, I'm just, you know, even after my experience, especially with uh, Two Broke Girls, where I felt like I, I this is not my place. I don't like. It's not what you want to do anymore. Yeah. Now, now you also wrote for a bunch of uh, the the roasts. Now, I like those roasts, and 
I know, you know, it, it, is it because you're a nice guy, but you have to write mean. I mean, and but but the thing is, it has to be funny mean, and it can't be, you know, like stupid mean. I always say, I always said, you know, from joke writing and stuff like that, to try to write a really stupid joke is harder than writing a really good joke because it has to be so stupid that it doesn't sound stupid. And if people, if you, if you don't understand what I'm saying, any comedy writer will know that because it's like, I want this joke to sound stupid. But I don't want it to be like I don't want it to be stupid. Now with those, you want to be mean, but you don't want to be overly mean. And now, how do you find a line? Because you're sitting there now. Do you write for all the acts, or who do you write for when you write for those roasts? Well, usually the the writing staff on the roasts, their first big assignment really is to write for the people who are not stand-ups. The stand-ups are at a big advantage because they have friends that write for them. And they have two weeks to try it out, you know, three weeks to try it out in clubs and work on it where, uh, you know, the actors or whoever, sometimes they're, they're saying it out loud for the fourth time, you know, when they, you know, they just, so we, our, our job is to make them funny as best we can. Um, and, and you're right too. I mean, it's, it's really a hard thing to write a really hard blunt joke and try to make it smart you know right and and it's really about trying to find that thing in a person that's really going to resonate you know what i mean uh i have to say i'm proud of this joke for the uh, trump roast uh, i was gonna ask you about after you tell me the joke i would ask you about the trump roast uh for snoop dogg i said uh donald trump is uh thinking of running for president why not? It's not the first time he's kicked a black family out of their home. <laughs> right. So now when you wrote that, and this was what, 2011, I think, or just a few years back. Yeah, yeah. Did you ever think that Trump would actually run for president? I mean, you met the guy, and I still think, and I, this is just one of my conspiracies, and I just joke around with my friends, and you might be right. I go, I think he's in cahoots with Hillary Clinton, just getting every ta- everybody sit there and go, God, the Republicans are crazy. And then they go, Hey, this Hillary looks great. But now, when you did you ever think, like, when you wrote that joke, that it he would actually run for president? Well, I I'm still not sure he's running for president. <laughs> I right. think he's still doing a big commercial <laughs> for himself. Uh, people still are saying, well, he could get to the next level. I mean, he may get to the next level, whatever that is. But he's he's gonna, you know, once once they realize he has nothing to say, really, he has nothing to offer. He's just yelling at people. There's no real content there, so isn't it going to end in, you know, two months, three months? I mean, how how much excitement can people continue with a guy that's just yelling, you know? So, I don't know. Uh, no, 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 you wrote for Bieber, too. Yes. Bieber was. Now, you know, people can say what they want about Bieber, but I'm going to tell you this. My, my girlfriend does uh, volunteer work for Make-A-Wish, and she did an event that he was on, and she said he was the nicest, nicest kid. Like, he brought all these girls gift bags he sang like he's supposed to spend like two minutes with them each he spent like 15 minutes with each of them. he played like five songs what i mean he seems like a nice kid but he's got that he's got that reputation do you feel bad because like you're sitting there and you're going god i'm really smashing this kid and he's still he's a kid i mean he's 20 or 19 or whatever do you feel bad just going to man i gotta i gotta bust this guy's ass not at all okay because first of all he showed up saying i want to do this bring it don't let anybody hold back. He was into it. I mean, he liked the roasts. He volunteered. He, you know, he gets a shitload of money, but uh, he wanted to do it, you know. And so he was so cooperative, cooperative, and he he almost he did almost everything we wrote for him. He had no objections. He was into it. You know, he brought some of his own stuff. He was great. Uh, I kind of respected him after that because. I could see that he was challenging himself. He was in the unfamiliar waters, uh, uh, you know, between uh, in, in a break during the middle of the, the roast. I'm backstage with him going over his lines through the teleprompter, and he was I could tell he was really nervous. He had the water bottle in his hand, and he's, like, strangling it, and he's reading the lines. And uh, So I really liked that he was in a place that he was not, comfortable with and and plowed through it and he went through all those things that like a stand-up goes through where you could see once he got a few laughs then he opened up and brought it up to the next level i mean it was it was great you know now the futurama i want to go back to futurama 
when you when you got on that show, did you think it would be as popular as it was? I mean, because I mean that you've been to Comic Con and stuff like that because of that show. Is there any shows that because you went on Coach towards the end? And you know Becker, which I thought was great, and you know you and you've done the different like the Martin Short. But when you got on Futurama, because that became a really big cult classic. I mean, it ran for a long time, and they they, they brought it back a few times, didn't yes. they? So now, first of all, how did that door open up? Because through Family Guy, or how did that door open to get into Futurama? Um, I was working on Eddie Murphy's Foamation cartoon, the uh, the PJs. Do you okay. remember the PJs? Yeah, yeah. And those guys at Futurama loved the PJs. And then there was this this like uh, producers bowling party benefit, you know, and David Cohen was there who created Futurama and I knew who he was. And then we just kind of hung out at the party and he talked about how much he loved the PJs and all that. And then once he found out <clears throat> that I worked for NASA and worked on the space shuttle, you know, all of a sudden, like a couple weeks later, I get a call over there like, what's Mike? doing now is he around is he available and i'm like oh i'm available you know uh and and when i started that show i kind of knew there was something special about it you know i thought it was a really smart show obviously and everybody in the room were harvard graduates you know i'm i'm you know the tech high school right guy uh so i also got like a harvard education just being in that room but I kind of knew from the start it had really had something to it. There was, you know, it's just really special. Now, what was it like going to Comic Con? Because that's when you really see the fanatical fan. I mean, you, you have your fans, but then you have the Comic Con, you have the fanatic fans, and you probably did a panel. Yeah. What is that like? Because I know people who've been on Star Trek and stuff have been to these conventions, and they go, "It's the, the fans are the best." I mean, they're just because they know everything about you like they probably knew all like oh yeah you know they probably heard you wrote for futurama so they probably started watching becker i mean i've heard they're like the people that sit there and go we like that what was that like finding like just these people must have adored you it was really strange especially i'm there with my family and my young sons and i didn't expect it they would actually recognize you and you know just walking through the how do they recognize you as a writer today i guess online google okay i mean there's some pictures of me but that's just weird when you think like a writer. Especially a writer and, you know, maybe if you're on The Simpsons, you understand it's been this big cultural, you know, phenomenon. But Futurama, but I guess you're at Comic-Con, you know, and they know your episodes you wrote and they'll have different critiques of, you know, well, I didn't think it was quite good that you made uh, Bender want to be a woman. You know, they really take, you know, and especially for me, my episodes of Futurama I was a little bit more of the emotional guy, you know, I wrote a lot of the, like I, I wrote an episode about robosexual marriage where, you know, in the future, a robot can't marry a human. So it was about changing the laws about a robot okay. getting to, and it, the fans were like, no planets are blowing up. What do you, why would right. you, you know, uh, so they would let me know about it. Like oh, another micro episode where somebody's crying now, you know what I mean? So, but. But that's what I brought to the show. That's what I brought to the table, you know. Uh, but it was cool because also you walk around and they would stop you. And then they would show you, like, okay, I got a tattoo of Bender on my knee. You know what I mean? And it's it's weird that it, it – and I kind of liked it. I liked that people were listening and appreciating and into it. I mean, how could you not, you know? Uh, and you get, like, the almost archetypal questions of, you know, well, in episode six, if he traveled into the future, how is it possible that, you know, they think more about it than we ever do? And That's funny because they're probably so into it. It's like, you guys, you have to write it and you have to make it funny and you have to make it 22 minutes and make it entertaining. And I'm sure, yeah, it's like you guys don't, you write it, but you don't sit there. You don't have that whole backstory of, you know, or that idea, you know, where you're going to sci-fi because you're like good for you I and mean, you've had to write for a coach you've had to write for a grumpy doctor you've had to write you know for family guy you've had to write for celebrities so for you you're probably thinking okay i'm not thinking about the whole breakdown yeah. of where futurama is going yeah although i have to say there were some points that they knew that they wanted to do sort of you know down the line with futurama it wasn't that detailed not as detailed as the fans thought it was but you know now what was it like <clears throat> you want you want an animated emmy you want an emmy yeah. Now, now, what's that like? Because you you, were, um, you guys were nominated a lot. Yeah. Now, did now what is that like to win an Emmy? Now, you go to the you go to the the 
the ceremony, the tactical ceremony, right? Yeah. Okay, so what's it like to go that? It must be cool. It it was great. Um because uh, the the technical is the week before, but it's you know, it's the same not televised version, but it's the same building and right. there's celebrities and the whole thing. So uh winning was actually more exciting than I thought it would be. And it is kind of the Super Bowl ring, at least for me. Uh, because it was a little bit of one of the goalposts I thought about as a kid when I started writing. I like it's like imagine if that happens. <clears throat> so then when it does happen, I mean it's so surreal and it was so exciting and running to the stage. Uh, you're you're kind of king of the world for a second, you know, and and to me it's not like it, it was never a feeling of like this is going to change my career and this is going to get people to really notice me. I looked at it more as like a personal thing. This is the thing you tell your mom and dad about. This is, you know, this is just my own personal goal. I don't, I don't sort of flaunt that because I don't even know if it makes a difference in the industry. You know, I don't know, but it was more personal for me. Where do you have the Emmy at? In the sort of first bookshelf you see when you walk in the house. That must be cool though. Cause my, my friend Rob, his, his grandfather was a special effects guy and did the wizard of Oz and they have an Oscar and at one of their Christmas parties, I was like, it was so cool holding it, and damn, those things are heavy. Yeah. I mean, the Oscar was majorly heavy. Yeah. Now, did you used to do like a five cent to 50 cent joke or something like that? Someone asked me to ask you that. When you back, you did stand up. A guy named Clay Heary said, I said, if you have any questions for any of my guests, and he said, ask him about turning 50 cents into five cents. I don't know. Was, oh, that was just some joke I put on Facebook or something. I, that's what he asked me to ask you, so I don't know. Oh, I don't know. I it's just, so now, now, what made you decide to get back in stand-up? After 20 years away, and after seeing the ghost come out of your body, the, the, it's like, I always feel like now there'll be like a ghost with it, you know, come floating around yeah. going, boo. What made you decide to sit there and decide you wanted to do it again? Well, first I was asked... <laughs> So no, you knew Wendy. Yes. And so she she knew you used to do stand up. Had you ever worked with her when you did stand up? I don't think we ever did a show together, you know. Uh I don't know why exactly, but um and not only was I asked to do it, but the venue was three blocks from my house. <laughs> okay. It's Vitellas. Yeah, yeah. And but more importantly, I wanted my sons to see me do stand up live. They've not seen me do it. So I thought that was important. And <clears throat> so I figured this is the opportunity. I bring my sons. <clears throat> Excuse my throat. I, uh, it's only a little cancer. It's all that stand up. It's all that stand up. See that you, you're getting that stand up thing back. It's my. Uh, <clears throat> is ten packs a day too much to smoke? Yeah, it's yeah. You know, eight, eight, you're fine. Ten, okay. you're going over. I never smoke, but I should start. I'm wasting a good. I know you, you had that. You throat. had that cough. You know you're wasting it. Yes. I know. I should have. Uh, anyway, so it actually went very, very well because I think this is kind of what you're alluding to when you're in a situation where. You're not a kid. There's no pressure. Like as a, when you're younger, all those sets had so much pressure on them. And you're learning the craft. And you're going, oh my god! Like when I was on the road, if I try something new and if I lose the crowd, I might not get booked back here. And then I'll lose that money, and then you, you, yeah, you yeah. get all crazy. And this was just like the only reason to do it is just to have fun and go crazy and take the best of what I thought was my sillier fun things and just kind of repurpose them and put a new coat of paint on them and just went crazy. And it, it was such a very receptive room and uh, it was great and it was fun. And I kind of hit that right pocket for whatever reasons. And uh, it was great. Now, did you do bits that you did years ago? Yes. I said, no, but that's cool. Cause I, you know, you think about it, like it's, it's bad. Like I work with an act who I, he was, I was, cause I went, when I would go back East, I would do, my girlfriend lived right near a club. So I go, okay, I go over and do like a 15 minute set. And it was a weekend crowd. And then some of these people were doing the same act that I remembered them from back in like 1992. But the problem was the same act in 1992 was political. You know, uh -huh. so it, it doesn't transcend. But now for you, now did you, do you ever throw in any things you wrote for TV shows? Did you ever do that or? No, but it, it was funny that like the material, a lot of the material was like, Guys, it's hard being single, you know, and I've been married for 15 right. years. So I would just couch it in this stupid setup of like, you know, when I was single, I learned so much. So I try to instill what I've learned on my sons, you know, like I told them, like, when you're single, you know, and just this stupid elaborate setup to make it sound like I just wrote it. Now, know? is it hard doing stand up in front of your sons for the fact that I'm sure your sons have watched your TV shows and they know you're a writer and they know you're funny 
And now you're walking in and their sons are watching their dad who they have never seen do stand up. That to them it's alien. I mean, never live and they're sitting there. Were you were you nervous? I mean, probably in front of the crowd I wouldn't be nervous, but for my sons because it's like it's a young thing. It's like if you if you if you bomb and you try to discipline them, they're like you can't even get a laugh. How can you tell us to go to your room? It's funny cuz I they've always been curious about stand up and how I started and what was the process like. And I, I've in the past, I've told them, you know, here's what happens sometimes. Sometimes it goes great. Sometimes it doesn't go great and you don't know why, you know, and I kind of talked about that. I, I said, I used to do so much stand up that I would purposely tank it just to learn how to get out of it. You okay. Know what I mean, so I, I told them there was a process to it and that happens sometimes, you don't know why. And so I kind of, you know, they were prepped if it didn't go well. Um, but I think they even now have a newfound respect because they're at that teenage, you know, part of their life where parents aren't cool. I don't want to hang out with my parents, you know, but then they brought friends with them and I saw that I made their friends laugh. So I got this little bit of credibility back. See, that's you cool. Know? Now, now will you do it again or was that, was it a one and done or would you do it again? Uh, I would do it. I wouldn't, you know, get on the phone and make calls and ask people to book me, you know, but like say if Wendy calls me in a couple months or whatever to come back again, I would probably do it. Uh, I fully prepared for the uh, sophomore jinx, you know. That's always, I know, everyone everyone kills their first time yeah. and then they go and they eat it and they go, wait a second, it's supposed to be easy. Yeah. So now, now you said you're pitching a, you're pitching a show right now? Yes, uh, two. Okay. Um, Both have big celebrities attached to them, so big that I cannot say. That sounds like. Bullshitting, but no, I believe it. Uh, uh, I'm sort of not allowed to say, but um, so I uh, one of them I just teamed up with a, a production animation house called Bento Box, and these are the guys that do uh, Bob's Burgers and a bunch of stuff. And so I'm taking them on as partners, and we're gonna all go together. We're gonna, in fact, this is what I'm really trying to do, which could be. When you pitch shows and they hear so many pitches, you just have to really think of something, some kind of dog and pony show to bring. So I have such great relations with all these animation voice actors. So I'm going to bring them in the pitches with me and do like a mini table read in the pitch. Perfect. Yeah, I mean, these guys, John DiMaggio, I don't know if you know John and and Dave Herman, uh, Tara Strong. They're all these really great, especially, you know, at the table reads, they really like light up the room so i figure you know that could be fun it could be fun they the kid could look forward to that um well hopefully uh, hopefully we'll take off yeah i'm hoping because that's good now now you're you're on twitter are you on twitter i i, I don't i'm on there but i'm not on that much you got a tweet because i mean you're a comedy writer i bet you have, i bet you have some killer tweets i do a lot of uh facebook jokes i throw a lot of stuff on there now I, do you do you write political jokes or what kind of jokes do you usually write now when it's for you. Anything from silly, you know, I just would write a random thing like, uh, like I think I just put a couple weeks ago, my, uh, the backup camera on my car just got picked up for 13 episodes. You know, just fun stuff. Just really random. I want, I want to thank you for coming on. See, it's this, exactly, this is fun. I, I you know, and I, I know you work. I, I remember seeing you on those comedy shows, which is funny. I mean, you know, cause we watched all of them and they were on over and over and over and over and over and mm-hmm. over. But I want to thank you for coming on and good luck with your show. And now you're on Facebook. And now what is your Twitter handle in case we get you tweeting again? Uh, I, th- I think it's Mike Rowe show. One okay. word. Well, look up Mike Rowe show and that's R O W E. And don't look up the other Mike Rowe. Cause he, I don't think he's funny. He has some good political posts, I believe, but I don't think the other Mike Rowe is funny. So, so we can go to IMDB and two people look at all this work. And we didn't even talk about Brickleberry, which Jerry Miner was in. Jerry's great. And, uh, he writes with John Matta. They just did a show together. Oh, cool. So it all, it all comes back. So follow him people. Uh, and follow me on Twitter. That's at Cooper talk. That's at Cooper talk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 400 episodes. Uh, you can also find me on iTunes or Stitcher. One word, Cooper Talk, and you'll find all the episodes. And if you have a Google or an Android thing, just go to the Google Play Store and type in Cooper Talk. And I have an app. It's free. You can get the shows there. Send me an email, cooper at coopertalk.net. Now go to my other website, stopthesalt.com. Buy my low-sodium cookbook. You know, when I get out of the hospital, I had to change my diet. So it's 120 recipes, all easy to make. No pictures, you won't get intimidated. A nice, a nice uh, key in the front, so you know how much ingredients to add. And no crazy spices, you won't need cumin. 
Go buy it. You can buy it on Amazon or go to StopTheSalt.com. Buy it from me. I'll sign it. I make more money that way. I don't make much more, much money off the Amazon, but the other way I do. So do that. Follow me at Cooper Talk. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, have a wonderful day.